morning, everyone. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? A couple of things of business real quick. Um, one, um, it's fascinating to me how much we'll watch a screen when we won't watch anything else. So <laughs> it's been fascinating to me to get the responses on the new um, video announcements. Some of you love them, some of you hate them. Welcome to my world. Um, that's just uh, part of life. But you do watch the screen very well. Um, anyway, it's neither here nor there. But one of the things I did want to point out is we have a new sign-up location called Fullness.Life. We've been rolling it out over the past three or four months. Almost everything you're going to sign up for in the days ahead as a part of Fullness, you can find at Fullness.Life. So uh, please, just it should be easy to remember, uh, Fullness.Life. And so, for instance, we've got the Thanksgiving feast coming up. We hope that you'll sign up. We hope that you'll come because it's one of our favorite events of the year to come and give thanks to the Lord. Uh, we have been in a series called Activate. And in this series, we've been talking about how God, we believe God wants all of us to increase our influence on the world. So you and I have been given a sphere of influence and we want to see you fully activated to impact that sphere of influence. We've been doing classes on Wednesday night, which we ended this past Wednesday night, was our last one. We've got a break this Wednesday and then the Thanksgiving feast. But we've been studying God's Word and then trying to put it into practice in some practical ways on Wednesday night. And we want you to really keep pressing forward in this truth about increasing our impact. Because uh, as Paul tells Timothy, for instance, he reminds him to fan into flame the gift that God had put into him. Why does he have to remind Timothy? I may be reading into this a little bit, but why does he need to remind Timothy to fan into flame? Be because we forget. We for all of us, over a period of time, forget. And we need to be reminded, hey, God is impact. He's given you something. Use it for his kingdom's sake. And in Matthew, Jesus has to say to, say to his followers, hey, you're a, you're a light. Don't put your light under a basket. Let it shine. Why does he say don't put it under a basket? Because our temptation is to basket it or whatever, to cover it, to, to, to not let it do what God has given us to do. It, this is no condemnation. This is just us. This is the way life goes, that over periods of time, we become weary in well-doing. That's why Paul says, don't become weary in well-doing, because there's this temptation in all of these things to lose and to deactivate ourselves. I think this is a really, this is an important message for us today. I, I know, listen, I'm preaching to myself today as much as anybody. And, and he, here's the reason why. Let me give you the setup, and then it, the story's going to take a little while to unfold, and then I'm going to give you the points. And then we're going to celebrate communion together, because to me, communion is exactly what we're talking about. It is a reminder that God has done something for us and to not lose the impact of the blood and body of Christ because we all become 
apathetic over a period of time. All of us become... Now, some of you here today may... Christianity may be new to you, and you're still real excited about it. <clears throat> and that I hope you never lose that. And that's what we're trying to help all of us do, stay, stay on the edge of it. But there are things that happen in life, and there are reasons, and I think you'll understand as I go along this morning what I'm, what I'm trying to get across. God, God gives us vision for life. The, the Bible is full of men who were ordinary, who become extraordinary because they get a hold of God's vision for their life. Abraham was just this guy. I mean, really, there wasn't anything special about Abraham. He was this guy, and God speaks to him, and Abraham responds. Have you ever thought about, you think there were other guys that God was trying to talk to that didn't listen around the same time as Abraham? I've always kind of imagined God called Abraham, but maybe God was calling others who just didn't answer. But Abraham gets God's vision. He responds. He, he, he's promised to be the father of a great nation. He's promised to have a land. He's promised to have an inheritance. And when he launches out on a trip from his homeland to another land, he has none of those things. And it's a long time coming before anything gets close to fulfillment of, for instance, the children. Yeah. I mean, he's got to go a long time before this happens. I mean, some of us, we got no idea you know, how long. I, I got a promise, but the fulfillment of it is a long way away. Moses was a was a shepherd, a stuttering shepherd on the, the backside of the desert when at age 80 he sees a bush on fire and God says, go get my people and bring them out. I mean, it's a, it's a huge, ordinary people. David, youngest in his family, a shepherd, songwriter, sheep keeper kind of guy. Nothing special, really, when you think about it. Becomes a giant slayer. It's another I don't know, 7 to 20 years before he becomes king after he's anointed. He's got a long journey ahead. I mean, we could go on and on about ordinary people or people who have disqualified themselves in some way that God gives vision to, and then they pick up on that vision, and then they, they launch out after it. Now, my, I, I, at times, I guess what you're thinking when I say something. And so, for some of you right now, I'm guessing yes, but. Yes, but, you know, Moses saw a burning bush. God spoke to Abraham. Um, you know, a, a priest shows up and anoints David king. Uh, I got nothing really going on. How do I catch a vision for my life? Let me say that God's word is full of visionary statements about you. Visionary statements about you that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are Christ's ambassadors. You're to be in the disciple-making business. You are to represent him to the world. We're to, we're to have love for one another. We're to use our spiritual giftings to build up the body of Christ. And if you sit there and say you have no vision for your life, then I would say to you your faith in one sense is in vain. You say you have faith in Jesus, but if you have faith in Jesus, then you have to have faith in what Jesus says about you. It extends from one place to another. This isn't just about, yeah, but 
No, God has put vision in your life if you'll open yourself up to receive. How do we receive this vision? We receive it in the exact same way we receive Jesus in faith. Faith says, I can't do this on my own. As long as you keep looking at yourself and say, I can't do this on my own, you're right, you can't. But when you say, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death, come awake. Come awake. We need to wake up to who Jesus has called each of us to be in faith. Listen, for grace you are saved by, not of yourselves, least anyone can boast. But, next verse, for we are his workmanship, created when? In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's work. You're God's treasure. You're his masterpiece on display. And I, I know, so you feel more like a piece of clay that didn't get formed quite right, and you're no masterpiece. But receive what God says about you. Because when you do, then you'll start to walk in it. So I want to tell an Old Testament story and just walk us through it. And to get us to a place, I think you'll, you'll understand where we're headed by the time I get there. So just hang on, because I don't want to give you the punchline before I get to the end. Imagine yourself. You've been born under an oppressive regime. You, you have no future, really. You're, at best, a slave. You, you're, you're, you've been taken from your homeland and placed in another land. And now you're, you're really a household servant. When something happens in your life that changes your view of the future, now, I, I'm setting up the background for uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it says in Nehemiah 1.11, it says, I was a cupbearer to the king. I was a cupbearer to the king. It means he's a butler. He's a slave. He's a servant. Let me remind you very quickly of history. I'm not going to go through this, but how many of you are still doing their Bible readings? We're in Hosea. Hosea is basically saying, hey, I'm done with you, but I'm not done with you. That's God. It's kind of like God saying, I'm done with you, but not, I'm not done with you. Well, part of God's being done with them is that Judah eventually comes under the judgment of God, and they are wiped out. The nation is, I always want to teach more than I should, but Remember, the nation was divided into two, ten tribes of the north, long gone. They've been wiped out because they were so wicked. Two tribes of the south, Judah, the nation of Judah, the descendants of David rule over this. They're the, the, the last to fall, and that's where Jerusalem is. The Babylonians sweep in. God uses a pagan nation to sweep in and to judge the, his people because they just won't turn back from their wicked ways. Jerusalem is annihilated. The walls are torn down. The temple is destroyed. They're carried off into captivity, the people that are left. Some are left sprinkled around, but for, the, for all practical purposes, they're slaves. Period of Daniel, period of Esther. They're carried off into slavery. And Babylon is eventually conquered by the Persians. 
and the Persians are a little, um, they're, they're less wanting to dominate and take slaves. They want people to go back to their homeland and to uh, keep their homeland for them, and they'll rule over them there. The Babylonians had this philosophy, let's take these people out and put these people in, and all the unfamiliarity will, Persians had a different mindset. So when the Persian kings come in, they start to send people back to their homeland. Well, when the people get sent back from Babylon to the nation of Judah to Jerusalem, they find it decimated. You know, the nation, it's been anywhere from 70 to 100 years, 50 to 100 years since they've occupied the land. They start sending some people back at 50 years, and then it just keeps going from there on out. But, and so they start to rebuild the temple. They start to try and get things back in order. You can imagine trying to get a whole infrastructure, even in that day, as limited it was, trying to get it back up and up and running. But not everybody goes back. A lot of people have to stay because they're slaves. You know, the king says who gets to go back and when they get to go back. So there have been some people who've been sent back and some who are still in Babylon. One of these guys is Nehemiah. Now think about it. Nehemiah is a butler. All he knows is life in Babylon. He's never even been to Jerusalem, most likely. Never visited there, never vacationed there, never took a cruise. He's never been there at all. He was born and raised in Babylon. Word comes back from the people who have gone and started working there that the walls around the city are gone. They're destroyed. Now, listen, please, 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 please. For the next 45 minutes, when I keep saying wall, don't think the wall, you know, that we're thinking about today. Uh, the Mexican wall, the wall. You know, I know that some of you, are, you're going to get stuck on that after a while, but just ignore that now that I've told you you can't, right? But just ignore that kind of analogy that we have in our society because the walls around a city were crucial. They kept animals out. They kept enemies out. They allowed trade to occur. Without the wall around the city of Jerusalem, the, the city as it is would never be able to function properly. It just wasn't going to be able to, the city wasn't going to work. They were going to, it was always going to be a backwards, unprotected, no means of support kind of city. <clears throat> Nehemiah hears that the walls are gone and nobody's trying to rebuild them. He gets a vision for rebuilding the walls. The dude's a butler. I mean, he's not an architect. He's never even been to Jerusalem. And so what he does is he, he begins to pray. Not a bad place to start, by the way. His prayer for the walls and what to do last for probably a period, scholars believe, of about four months. So this isn't one of these, hey, I'm going to fast and pray tonight and see what God gives me for tomorrow. I mean, he goes hard after God to see what should I do? What should I do? How can I help get these walls rebuilt? He takes the unbelievable risk to go to the king and hope for favor. And the king sees Nehemiah and says, 
to him basically, what, what's going on? And he says, you know, the, 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 the city is in ruins. Jerusalem is in ruins, and I, I feel led to rebuild it. And God gives him favor. Here's one of the things about God's vision in your life is that if you'll step out in it, you'll be amazed the favor that God will give you. I mean, if it's his vision for your life, he's going to help pave the way for it to occur. But many of us, we don't want to step out. We want the favor, and then we'll step. You understand? But God says, hey, step, and I'll give you the favor. I, I'm like you, though. <laughs> I want the favor and then the step. You know, the, 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 the lepers, do you remember the story of Jesus healing the lepers? He says to them, go and show yourself to the priest. Well, they're standing there. They got nothing to show. You know, nothing's happened to them while they're standing there. But the Bible says as they went, they got healed. I mean, it takes faith to go and show yourself to the temple guys when nothing has happened yet. Nehemiah. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm trying to get, I'm going to try and pick up the pace here. But it's such a great story already. Aren't you encouraged that you can get God's vision for your life? Nehemiah, he gets favor. He gets money. He gets a little army together. The king gives him all the stuff he needs. He launches back out. He gets to Jerusalem. He indeed finds the place in ruins. He gathers the people together. And, and he, says, um, he says to them, look, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem, it's in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. He rallies the people together, and that was no easy task because some of the people didn't want to be rallied. Some of the people were much more, you know, these walls have been like this about 100 years. I mean, really, that's how long it's been like that, 100 years. Yeah, you know, we've done pretty well. We've done fine, 100 years. Why change things? Will it really be any better? Well, you know, so he's got to rally the people together, and he does. He rallies them together, and he gets them together. And, and this is just an incredible story of the guy who was a slave, who was a butler, who goes back and starts rebuilding the walls. An incredible story of vision and how God used Nehemiah to rally the people together. Here's to me where the story just, this is, this is to me, me and many of us. What happens next? The enemy steps back and says, oh, dead gummit. Building the wall, good for them. Uh, let him go. Let him rebuild the wall. No, this is where the enemy comes in with fear, fatigue, frustration, even things of failure, to get us discouraged, to make, try and get them to quit. To say, oh, the walls, they're about knee high now. You know, knee high Maya, he's the shortest guy in the Bible. Um, and, and, but they're, they're not very tall. You can use that one later, thanks. <laughs> anyway, they, they start getting the walls rebuilt, and they're just starting, and some of the gates, and this is when the enemy just goes after them to try and discourage them. Here's my point this morning. Here's what I'm trying to get to. There's the initial vision. 
There's the launching out of the vision. And then the one thing I can promise you is an attack from the enemy. And the, and the bigger the vision, the bigger the attack. The more that God wants to take us down and to keep us from fulfilling what he has in our lives. And it, to me, there's a level of commitment that says, okay, I'm back here. I'm going to take step one. I'm going to experience the favor of God. But to me, the real battle is when the enemy launches in when we're start, we've started the journey and we're on our way. It's at that point that he is really going to try and take us out. He'll try and take us out before it ever starts, but he's guaranteed to try and take us out then, and then he's not going to quit after that either. He'll keep coming after us again. We live in a period of time where we have more stuff than any other people on the face of the earth have ever had, and yet we have the most hopelessness, discouraged people. Not long ago, a planetarium in New York, a planetarium, did this study to get people to sign up who wanted to go to another planet. Just to say, hey, we got the, we're going to fill out applications, and when the time comes, we're going to call on people. Within a day, they, this is a journey where they were saying to people, look, you'll never come back. Uh, you're going to die out there somewhere. And within a day, 18,000 people had signed up. Why? And most of these people signed up because I got nothing to live for here. I mean, that's just like in 24 hours. People are living hopeless lives. And, and here's what I want to say to us. People, we have hope. We have the message of hope for hopeless people. But the enemy has got us boxed in. He's got us feeling discouraged. He's got fear on us in a period of time that says, don't, don't launch out. Don't share. It says in Nehemiah 4, and this is where I want to focus just for a moment. He says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard about the repairs to Jerusalem wall, that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Enemy comes, people start saying, hey, let's give up. It's at this point the battle really begins. Just give up. Are you going to teach us anything, or are we just going to sit here? Just do whatever you want. I want to learn from my teacher. Besides that, Freddie, what do you like to do? I don't know. Burn stuff? Just go out and have recess. My parents don't spend $15,000 a year for recess. What, you want to learn something? Yes, I do. What, you want me to teach you something? You want to learn something? All right, here's a useful lesson for you. Give up. Just quit. Because in this life, you can't win. Yeah, you can try. 
But in the end, you're just gonna lose big time because the world is run by the man. Who? The man. Oh, you don't know the man? Oh, well, he's everywhere. In the White House, down the hall, Miss Mullins. She's the man. And the man ruined the ozone and he's burning down the Amazon, and he kidnapped Shamu and put her in a chlorine tank, okay? And there used to be a way to stick it to the man. It was called rock and roll. But guess what? Oh, no. The man ruined that, too, with a little thing called MTV! So don't waste your time trying to make anything cool or pure or awesome, because the man's just going to call you a fat, washed-up loser and crush your soul. So do yourselves a favor and just give up! funny clip that many of us have received to say, you know what? This is just too stinking hard. The Christian life, even, as much hope, I'm not going to give up on God. I'm still, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I, I'm not going to forsake my faith, but when it comes to being in the battle, I'm going to give up. I'm going to quit rebuilding the wall. And, and to me, this is where vision and commitment come together to accomplish what God wants, is when this time gets challenging and when the enemy comes against us, that we need to, to something to happen for life to flow within us. God gave Nehemiah a strategy when the people are saying, hey, there's too much rubble. We can't rebuild the wall. Now we've got enemies coming against us. God gives Nehemiah a strategy of posting people around. Some are going to guard and some are going to build in order to see what God wants accomplished. And again, this I, I could digress here a lot, but I'll try not to, to say everybody's got a role. Some may guard, some may build, some may do this, some may do that. But God has given us all a role to accomplish, to see his kingdom purpose done if we'll stay in. How do we stay in it? How do we stay committed? That's the points I want to give you, and I'm going to walk through them fairly quickly because I think they're obvious in one sense. Hard, but obvious. The first, rule over your emotions. Rule over your emotions. Here's what, and this is all from Nehemiah 4, 14, and 15. Here's what Nehemiah says to the people. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. What was the enemy's tactic to them? Fear. One of the things you're going to see is the enemy never actually did anything. The enemy never really attacks. The enemy doesn't say, he just, yeah, he stands back. Better stop building that wall. We're going to cut you down, you losers. I mean, he just yells insults at him. Tells him what he's going to do, but never does it. And as a result, fear enters the people. And fear is that overwhelming emotion that just paralyzes us. And Nehemiah is saying, don't be afraid of him. Get control over your emotions. Get control. Now, we are emotional people, and I in no way want to say to you, don't. Don't be emotional. That's not what he's saying. There's a difference, though, from, from feeling something and you're feeling something being in charge of you, controlling you, right? So there, there is emotion that we experience in response to stuff, and then there's emotionalism, which is what drives us. 
we need to get control over our emotions. The city of Jerusalem, the, the facts are these. The city was surrounded on all sides by enemies. The workers faced threat. But Nehemiah is trying to encourage them, our God is greater than the enemy. Don't let this overwhelm you. We do a whole study on, on emotions. But for some of us, and many of us are controlled by different things. But for some of us, we have to confess, you know what? My emotions control me. God, help me get control over every part of me. For others of us, there are habits that control us. There are ways of thinking that control us. I mean, we've all got things that we need God to step in by the power of his spirit and help us with. But in this case, we're talking about emotions. Douglas Rumford, in a, in a book called Scared to Death, which I think is a scared to life, I mean, uh, says this, 60% of our fears are totally unfounded. 20% are already behind us. You know, many of us are afraid of things that have already happened. It's, it's true. 10% are so petty they don't make any difference. 5% are real, but we can't do anything about them. Only 5% are real, and we can do something about them. In other words, he's saying... Many of the times, much of the time that we fear stuff is stuff that will actually not happen, is not real, or we have no control over. Have faith in God and not your problems. Not your emotions. Okay. Remember the Lord your God. It's when we start to forget that we, our commitment starts to wane. In Nehemiah 4.14, he says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. <clears throat> I, when we started the service off this morning, I, I read to you from Psalm 121 that says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Have you ever, have you ever noticed how many times the nation of Israel would rehearse the history of what God had done? Over and over and over, they would, if you read a lot of the Psalms, they start off by saying, oh, okay, here's what God did. He delivered us. He called us after this. He, did, he helped David. He did this. He did that. Why do they need to do that? Because in the remembering of what God has done, faith rises up. He did it before. He can do it again. I mean, why do we sing songs that talk about, I've been risen, God, Christ has risen from the dead. He has raised me to life. Because we're remembering, hey, if God can raise me from death to life spiritually, there's nothing beyond him. There's nothing else greater. He did that. He can, do, he can overcome this. He can beat the enemy. Robert Schuller said this, impossibilities vanish when a man and his God confront a mountain. Nothing's impossible with God. You know, we say that, but we really, we have trouble believing it. Because we've, we honestly, we have more faith in our problems than we do in our God. And a lot of it doesn't really have to do with God, honestly. A lot of it has to do with the fact we can't quit looking in the mirror. And we know, oh, you know what? I am so weak. So we have our problem that's like behind us even at times. 
But in a mirror, we're looking at ourselves and our problem, and it's keeping us from accomplishing what God wants us. So what do we, should we do? I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Put your eyes on God. Remember him. He's more. He's more. Honestly, how did you get here? I mean, why are you in church today? Because God did something somewhere to get you here. I mean, God has done something to get you to this place. Do you, are we really more than conquerors, overcomers? All right, remember the Lord your God. Leads to the third point, which is this. Refuse to give up. Refuse to give up. Nehemiah 4.14 says, and fight. Don't give up. When they come at us, fight. It's time to do battle. Remember, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We have weapons to fight with. God didn't leave us defenseless, and then he says to us, even in the New Testament, fight the good fight of faith. The position of hopelessness is always the one that quits fighting. And here's the deal. I don't know if I can articulate this well. We get a vision. We get opposition from the enemy. We have a choice. Do we fight or do we, do we quit? I believe fighting the enemy with the weapons he's given us will get us to the other side. But our temptation is to stop. And to stop fighting is the position of hopelessness. And here's the deal about that position. Once you're in that position, until you get in the fight again, you're always, always going to be in a hopelessness position. I, I don't know if this makes sense. In that, many of us think, if I get out of the fight and get over here, whoo, I'm going to, I can just rest. No, what happens is when you aren't where you're supposed to be, you're going to be in a hopeless position. I'm going to say hopeless. It's, it's an extreme word. But what I'm saying is there will be no satisfaction in your life. There will be no, like, I'm fulfilling the call of God in my life. When you've taken yourself out of the vision that God has given you and just quit. I don't know if I'm getting this point across because many of us think if I quit... Ooh, at least I'm not fighting, so I'll, I'll have that. Well, you've got that, but you've got a whole other battle going on now. Don't quit. Stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. This is one of the enemy's goals, by the way. He just wants you to quit. Okay. Fourth is this. Refocus on your purpose. Refocus on your purpose. Nehemiah They've already been doing this for a while. And in verse 14, he says, Here, here's why we're doing this. It's for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. We have to remember why we're doing what we're doing. For some of us, it's good to, to step back just for a second and refocus on why we're doing what we're doing. Because sometimes we start off with our eyes fixed on what we're supposed to be doing, and then something happens, you know, it's like that movie, Squirrel. You know, we look over here, and then we lose focus on where we're, we're headed. And, and if we're not 
careful we'll, we'll, we'll veer off. Focus on God. Don't focus on the enemy. Focus on the task. Focus on what God has given you to do. His purpose. Why we're doing what we're doing. It says in uh, Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, this is from the message. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything. Absolutely everything. Above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. If you're not sure where to look, look at him. Keep your eye, because everything finds its purpose in Jesus. Philippians 2, and I'll just hit these verses. I'm going to run through them, just write them down. Philippians 2 says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. All of these verses have to do with purpose. His intent was that now through the church, hallelujah, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's the point. God has direction and purpose for your life. Refocus on the calling that God has for, for your life. I'm on point something. Uh, what point am I on? Five. Five. Realize, thanks, Jack. Realize the enemy's strategy. Realize the enemy's strategy. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. When the enemy realized that the people knew their strategy, then the people could move on. When the, if It's the enemy who's trying to keep you in bondage out of fear and to keep you hopeless because that's where you're ineffective. So, realize that's his strategy. He's an accuser. He's an accuser of the brothers. He accuses you to you. He accuses me to you. He accuses each of us to each of us, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, children to parents, parents to children. I mean, just go down the list. That's his job description. He does it all the time. Realize his strategy, and then when you do, you can realize, oh, wait a minute. God doesn't give me a spirit of fear. Well, wait a minute. This fear can't be from God. Where's this fear coming from? You know, God, you know, I, I'm sure so-and-so doesn't really hate me. I'm sure what they said was not meant as something that was mean or ugly or hateful. You, you understand what I'm saying? When you start to think of the enemy's strategy, then you can silence the voice of the enemy rather than participating with him. And none of us wants, that's, a, the, the, that's what deception is all about. We get deceived. We don't know. What's going on? I'm going to skip uh, these next three verses. You know, Sam Blatt, he, he hears that they're rebuilding the wall, and he just, he just starts throwing things out there. Things that aren't true. I mean, look at this. What? They're building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. He just makes, start making outrageous. Ah, it ain't no wall. Put a little fox on it. It'll fall down. Here's my question. Do you know the enemy's strategies for you? Because honestly, uh, each of us has our weak points. Each, is, each of us has our particular things that we struggle with. 
Once we do this, then I think it's at that point we can return to the work with a new vision. Where the enemy, was the enemy gone? No, the enemy was still out there. But I think once these steps had been taken, we could step back, they could step back into what God had called them to do. He says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armors. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah. Do you know they rebuilt the wall in just weeks? I mean, weeks. It's like 50, 60 days. Something remarkable was the time frame that they rebuilt this wall once they refocused on it and got after it. I mean, it, it's a miracle, really, of how quick they accomplished what they accomplished when they said, we're going after it until we're done. We're not giving up. Thomas Edison was one of the great inventors. I mean, we're thankful because uh, we can see we're not in the dark for all that Thomas Edison had done. But by the time he was 67, he was, he'd gone through a lot of ups and downs. He was both an inventor and an entrepreneur. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, he would have up times where he made a lot of money and down times when he lost a lot of money. He'd gotten involved in the whole um, alternating current, direct current debate, AC versus DC. Uh, how are we going to did, and he invested his whole deal in the losing side. All his money had been placed on the losing side uh, that then became the norm for all of the United States. Anyway, by 1914, he, he was at a rough time, but he was reinventing stuff. He, his first wife had died. He'd remarried. He had some children with his second wife, and they, he was really going after some film things. He was really invested in trying to create movies and film and and something happened and a fire broke out at his plant where all his stuff was and it's all these chemicals and film stuff and it it went off and his son who's a little not young but old enough came running out trying to find his 67 year old father at this time was running through and trying to find his dad in this huge fire. And, and the son, in a biography later, says he sees his dad running toward him. And he says to him, son, son, go get your mother and her friends. And he said, what, what for? Get them out here. They'll never see a fire like this again. <laughs> I mean, the mindset that this is incredible. Go get your mom. He's going to love this. And his son said, in the charred ruins, his father said, this is great. All the junk is gone. All the stuff has been burned up. We can start again. We can rebuild from the ground up. At age 67. And then he turned to somebody else and said, hey, anybody know where we can get some money? <laughs> I, I, I mean... You know, that, that mindset that says, I've lost everything, but I am not quitting. I'm going to keep fighting forward. Listen, God give us that. 
Listen, there are many of us here today, and myself included, who are saying, you know, this has been really a long deal. I'm a little tired. This didn't end up exactly like I thought. I didn't end up like I thought I would. I thought I'd be much better. I'm just talking to myself. I thought I'd be much better by now. I mean, really, I'm 58. I, I've got, I've, I've been living the Christian life, spirit-filled life most of my life. I don't know where I thought I would be. You know, somewhere between, somewhere south maybe of Mother Teresa and a little north of Chris. But at some point, I would be, I'd be better than I am. And you know what I've realized? My wife tells me this all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm just like I always was, but more so as I've gotten older. I think it's finally dawned on her. Wait a minute. He's never going to change. I held up such hope for him. But by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to keep moving forward. I may be moving forward discouraged, but I'm going to keep moving forward. I may be wounded, but I'm going to keep moving forward. I, I, I want us to say, you know what? You're right. We are all just a mess. And I think once we get to that point where we say, you know, there's a lot of rubble around here, then we can say, all right, let's get after it. Let's start doing what God has called us to do. Somebody pick up a stone and put it on the wall. Somebody else, please start praying that the enemy will be defeated and keep our eyes focused on his tactics in our lives. Somebody else say, you know what? I feel like I'm supposed to go help a prisoner get free. Do what we're supposed to do, but whatever we do, do not give up. To commit to the vision is to be fully activated in God's kingdom. To quit is to deactivate and walk a life of hopelessness. Communion is this. It is saying, I remember. I remember that once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was far away, but now I'm in. Once I was dead, but now I'm alive. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for your body that was broken so that we who were many, like your body was broken, can now be one. Thank you for your blood that forgave my sins. Now, I'm going to walk out the vision of God in my life. I'm going to fully be activated for your kingdom's sake. People, when we come to the table of the Lord, we do not come to this place lightly. We remember. We receive and we respond to the grace of God in our lives. Lord, we thank you today. And I pray, Lord, we will be fully committed to your call in our lives. Lord, <clears throat> reinstill in us the vision. Reinstill in us the, the life. Reinstill in us the commitment to move forward no matter what. Lord, we thank you, and we bless you, and we receive all that you want us to receive from this table today as we receive the blood, the, the cup that represents your blood and the bread that represents your body. We receive all that you have for us today.
In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you as you come to the table of the Lord to receive.